0: Well, this is that season where I know many of us begin to think about the next year. It's somehow the season that happens to me every year, and I begin to think deeply after all the rush, and it feels like we never really got into summer, at least I didn't feel like we. Anybody else feel like that? It just kind of went away. Uh, uh, I think I had about a week of summer. But during that week, it was truly a time where I began to get existential and think about, okay, here we go, ramping it up again. What is this all about? And every year at this time, I preach a sermon, and it really is intended to be a kind of, of directive sermon, um, a sermon that, that has reflected on, that is, is a result of that reflection, not only for myself, but for you, uh, for our church. And so it may surprise you, because I came here this day, it's so beautiful and gorgeous, and we were having such a good time up as a session before we prayed, just there was a joy and happiness, and, and yet what I think that we need to talk about today is fear. I think we need to talk about fear because we don't understand fear, but I think at the very heart of the spirituality that we might need to pursue this year as a congregation, it's fear. That may surprise you because we have a kind of phobia about fear, and um, we see fear always as something negative. In fact, Even today, it's often the case that we feel uncomfortable saying to people, fear the Lord. We want to qualify it a thousand ways. Before you know it, it's all gone. That means just revere God, right, Pastor? That means just kind of respect God, right, Pastor? It means fear. And it opens up a very provocative question. What is fear? How do we understand fear in our own lives, but also particularly, how does that fear translate into a positive Theological virtue, a very prerequisite even to joy and blessedness. And so let me try to set the context. Studies universally suggest that we are living in one of the most fearful times in human history. According to Chapman University's survey on American fears, we are a society being choked with fear. And it goes on to explain that never before, really, has there been such unhealthy fear. Threats of terrorism, economic collapse, cyber warfare, government corruption, those are the things we hear about, but it's also making a living, children getting to school, on and on it goes. It's strange, over 70% of Americans have an unhealthy, an unhealthy encounter with fear in their life. But then there's this curious incongruity. Because according to one of the country's leading sociologists and the author of The Culture of Fear, College Lark, uh, Barry Glasner says this, this thing about fear, it's happening when most Americans are living in the safest place at the safest time in human history. I mean, around the globe, household wealth, longevity, and education are on the rise, while violent crime and extreme poverty, believe it or not, is down, both in America and globally. In the U.S., life expectancy is higher than ever before. Our air is the cleanest it's been in over a decade. And despite a slight uptick last year, violent crime has been trending down since 1991. All of this reported in the Atlantic. Last year, quote, was the best year in history for the average human being alive, end quote. And so it raises a really troubling question, doesn't it? How is it possible to be living in the safest time in human history... Yet at the exact same time, to be so scared. There's a three-part answer, the third of which will bring us to our Scripture. Before we do that, let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we call upon your presence as we embark upon a topic that perhaps we might be honestly resistant to hear. For while we hate fear, we, we gravitate towards it. We even love it. And Father, we pray, therefore, that this sermon would be more than a patty cake exercise of, of entertainment. Or that we would forgive us, Lord. But that, Lord, you would help us even now by your spirit to repent of lazy minds. That you would help us to repent of expectations that would in any way thwart a sacred rhetoric known as a sermon. The rhetoric of God to us. Lord, come, reason with us, argue it out with us. May we encounter you this morning, the true God, the the God, the mind of God. And God, your mind is the only mind we should fear even if we should also find it incredibly powerful and joyful, leading. Come, Lord Jesus, the wisdom of God unto salvation come. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, so I set you up that there's at least three general consensus reasons why, uh, well, I should say two consensus reasons, and then one that would come into our context here, why we're facing so much fear. I quote, first of all, you'll be pleased to know the Rolling Stone magazine for the first two, and then the third, I will quote scripture. But let's look at it. First, according to the Rolling Stones article, why we are living in an age of fear, two answers emerged, and it was actually quite a good article. Back in my day, the Rolling Stones didn't write like this, just saying. But why is it so? Well, the main reason it is described through the research that's, that's quoted there and studied, et cetera, et cetera, the main reasons for this is that there's a lot of power and money and avail- available to individuals and organizations who can perpetuate these fears. For mass media, insurance companies, big pharma, advocacy groups, lawyers, politicians, on and on and on it goes, your fear is worth billions, But why is the power of fear-mongering so great now? Well, see, that's that's coupled with this rather new and unique context that we call uh, modern media. Or the myriads of media forms that are now available to communicators to intrude upon our consciences and our souls. If not to have omniscience omnipresence in our lives. Think about that. This omnipresent media coupled with the incentivized fear-mongering is at least one of the main reasons why we see such a rapid growth in fear. And right there it should tell you, and this is not a sermon on, on such things, but it should tell you something about how we might want to regulate our lives and rethink uh, what is getting into our psyche and our minds. But then there's a second reason that's also quoted in this article, and it, and it goes in quite an elaborate uh, description of, of the modern research of brain science. The second reason we are living in an age of fear, albeit in the safest time in human history, is just really who we are by nature. Again, based on the recent discoveries from brain science, the fact is, According to Stanford neurobiologist Andrew Hoberman, quote, the more we learn about the brain, the more we learn it's not something that's supposed to make you happy all the time. It's mostly a stress-reactive machine. Its primary job is to keep us alive, which is why it's so easy to flip people into fear all the time. When it comes to assessing future risk, there's a litany of cognitive distortions and emotional overreactions that we fall prey to And so to brain scientists, as from the nothing but materialist perspective, that is, if your view of the world is that we are simply biological creatures, and we are, by the way, which is why I would take this study seriously on that part, but if it's nothing but biology, then of course, from this materialist perspective, inherent to our modern science, well, this might sell. But if you have a perspective that admits to spiritual and therefore moral aspects of causality, there is a third explanation that doesn't refute the materialist, but then further explains it in a way that I think we want to consider. What is that answer? Why do we have so much fear, according to the scripture, call it anxiety, if you will, Well, it's stated quite succinctly in Psalms 27. Let me quote it for you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom else shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom else? Then should I be afraid? Do you hear this? That is, when we cease to fear God as our ultimate and only real omnipresent and omnipowerful event in our life, or being in our life, or whatever thing, just for a moment, if you will, in our life, when we cease to fear God as our ultimate, omnipresent, omnipowerful thing, which is worthy, therefore, of our fear, then everything else becomes present and powerful. In short Psalms 27 labels fear and anxiety and its cause related to the whom else is and the what else is of the world and the bible word for that is idolatry. We fear because we're idolatrous. Let that sink in. We fear because we're idolatrous. Idolatry is a source of our fears. Now, it's not just one proof text. You see, the pastor, even if we're perfected in my faith as to really disbelieve in all of my idols and only believe only in the omni-everything danger of God, you might be saying, Pastor, wouldn't this mean that I would become the ultimate, fundamentalist, neurotic, always wringing my perspiring hands in the fear of God? Well, it might surprise you to hear me say, yes and no. (laughs) Yes, unless you discover that God, however dangerous, is also good. And that whatever you have done to offend him, he has provided a way that that offense can be relieved and resolved so that you have no need of anxiety. That God, who alone is God, and omnipresent, and omnipowerful, is also good, and gracious, and merciful, so that when you fear God, all fear is banished. Ah, you say. So, Pastor, you're saying that even behind and before the possible material causes in the brain, coupled with circumstantial causes of modern media and and fear-mongering motivations... That all of that is actually when we don't fear God in service to what we do fear, to a false God. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. But surprise, this can also even be vaguely supported by brain science. Now, while not necessary for us to believe God's word since our faith is based on supernatural revelation versus natural, what's very interesting about the study that I just quoted in the Rolling Stone article is it goes on to explain the significant nuance according to recent discovery in the brain science. Namely, that there are two portions in the brain that distinguish between what we call, what they would call, fear and anxiety. Now, I'm not going to get into what these are, I have it all here, but just because I had it's my notes and I keep them there, but the gist of it, there's one portion, the magogium I think it is, and it's and it's this place where it's, its its whole purpose is to react to a very real threat, with this automatic response that it, that is exerted. We experience the perspiring, the loss of breath, the, the rise of the heartbeat, all these sorts of things. If a cobra's head were doing this to me, it would set off a reaction that's meant to protect me. And it's this automatic, unconscious reaction. And these guys, these neuroscientists, they call that fear. But what we are describing as fear is what then happens in another place, in the cerebral vortex there. Cortex, I'm sorry. And what happens there? is the brain begins to reason with, fear, with the things that, that are fearful. And the brain begins to make categorizations about those things, naming them, giving them nomenclatures. And what's happening there is not reacting to any fat. What's happening there is worrying and anxiety about things that might, could happen. Based upon what are our ultimate fears. This is very interesting. That is to say, the goal is to separate real threats, what we should fear, from manufactured ones, what we shouldn't, in the source of anxiety. Again, with the advantage of supernatural revelation from God, we see the antidote. If anxiety, however, is an emotion, whereas fear happens in a place known as this Amaldala, am I saying that right, scientists, amalgadala? Something like that, a magdala. Thank, thank you, thank you. I knew I'd get a lot of support in here. <laughs> a place where neurons start firing and signaling the central to activate our reaction. We see the cerebral cortex as a place where convictions are formed. Where beliefs are formed. It's where you see brain activity and belief Statements and systems. And therefore, even brain science, though they lack the soul, if you will, at least as a science, and they should. They're studying another kind of revelation. But even science acknowledges that there's this place in the brain where faith is is at least located in a rational way. And that's where anxiety is. The scripture thousands of years ago said as much. Our fear is a faith problem. But more than that, it's a fear problem. And it's not because fear is wrong. It's because wrong fear is wrong. I hope you're getting this. Because this all sets us up to this amazing prayer in Psalms 119, which I would like to make the prayer of our congregation this year. Here again, listen to it as I read it. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, Clearly, there's this incredible focus in this prayer and throughout the Psalm 119 on God's Word. Stated in the various ways and in the most positive light in terms of wanting it, desiring it, hungering for it, praying for it. God's Word. And you think, well, hold it. I'm not seeing the point here. Well, look what happens next. Because this insatiable hunger and thirst for the word of God is a clue. Because what do we do when we fear something? We study it. We learn it. We will go to all extremes. I've told the story about the night when I discovered that I had naon, which is this disease that hit my eyes that's got me mostly blind. And I... Remember when I began to see that black dot, that evil black dot moving across my eye. And when I, after walking around Indiana University, putting my kid into school, went down to the lobby of the hotel and got onto the... I wasn't sleepy. I was energetic and alive with fear. And all night long, I do what I do best, especially when I'm not trusting God. I studied. I studied. I got so neurotically obsessed on that internet, it drove me finally to see what was happening, and I had researched every possible, possible scenario of how it could be dealt with before 7 o'clock that morning when the family woke up. You've been there, haven't you? I bet you have. You see, that's what's going on here. This is someone who's located something so fearful, so omnipresent, omnipowerful, that it has power like no other power in the world to affect my destiny, my life, the very balance of my life standing in the hand of this one that the psalmist fears, that he finds himself insatiably driven and attractive to know that God. Notice what it says then, just so you don't think I'm making this up. Verse 37, 38, it relates this insatiable prayer of Psalms 119 directly to The grounds, the source, which is his fear of God. Look what he says. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Now, what is he talking about? Things that he would put power into that don't have that ultimate power. Things he would fear. Things that are so powerful in his mind that it's life or death for him to to know it and to solve the issue with it, to get it resolved, to reconcile with it somehow. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That is language, clear wisdom. And then he goes, and I'm going to give you a, most, a very most literal translation of this next passage from the Hebrew itself. Rise up within your servant your word that to you is given fear. Rise up. This is salvation language. There's this language of repentance. Turn me away from all these idols that I fear. Rise up in me like someone who's been dead. Rise up in me. The fear of the Lord. And then once, what's the effect of all this? Verse 39 through 41. He says, therefore, turn away the reproach that I dread. The fear of God. The fear of being on his wrong side. The fear of in any way crossing him or crossing or transgressing his will. Turn away the reproach that I dread. You hear what he's saying? The thing that he fears, more than anything in the world, everything is worthless fear in comparison, is this God. This dangerous, powerful, omnipresent God. And he says, oh, behold, not wanting to offend him, not wanting to get on his bad side, wanting to please him, wanting to do everything impossible to propitiate, to satisfy any anger that he would have against me. He says, behold, I long for your precepts. These are all words for the word. I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me. There it is. What's he discovered? That the very one he dreads, the very one who is dangerous, worthy of fear, has revealed himself also. In the covenant history, even up to this point, as being one of steadfast, not just love, steadfast love. Oh, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. Oh my gosh. What a prayer. Let me just make some observations. This rather abrupt statement is clearly the focal point of the prayer. Rise up in me, to your servant, that is, the fear of God. It's clearly the focus, in it, and it begs the question, the fear of God. And do we see that as a positive virtue anymore? In this kind of licentious, free-graced kind of gospel that sometimes can be Replace from the true, exhilarating, amazing grace of the gospel that never once that kind of grace diminishes God. Do we see this as a virtue, a positive virtue, the fear of God, in contrast to worthless things that we would fear? By way of illustration, an You, If you want to do your own study, go get it. Go do your study. Put in fear of the Lord, fear and God, etc. But I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a summary, a synopsis here. Scripture makes it clear that the fear of the Lord is absolutely central to a believer's life and success in, in the life of God. Absolutely essential. Listen to what a whole spectrum of writers, these are just little bitty glimpses through redemptive history. Beginning with Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 13, 6, 13, I quote, Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. Don't fear anything else. And take your oaths in his name. That is, make your commitments to him. David. Psalms 33, 34, 86, 11, Now, I'll quote from 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 5, Ecclesiastes 8, Ecclesiastes 12. I'll quote from 5. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know, in other words, although it looks like sometimes people who don't fear God seem to get along all right, he says, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. This is the great wisdom of Ecclesiastes having looked and spanned the whole meaning of life. That's what that book's about. And here's how he concludes the meaning of life. He says, "Here's the conclusion of the matter, quote, fear God. This is the whole duty of humanity. Fear God." Job chapter 28, and he said to the man, "The fear of the Lord that is wisdom." Malachi, "Those Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in this presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Now you're saying, oh, pastor, you've read all these Old Testament passages. But but doesn't the New Testament take away fear? Matthew 10. Jesus. Do not be afraid. Of those who kill the body? Of those things that only have temporal power? Well, terrorist, cancer. Really, Lord? I mean, it's a pretty high bar. Don't fear things that can only... I mean, he could have said, well, call some, you know, immediate ungratifying experiences in your life. He could have said that. Uh, you know, don't just fear those who, who you know, can take your, you know, eight hundred thousand dollar house and make it into a four hundred thousand dollar house, or you know, who prevents you from taking I don't know, not ten trips. Maybe you'd have to only take two trips. I mean, don't don't fear those kind of things. No man, he went right at it. Don't fear. Don't be afraid of those things that can kill you. Your body, that is. But cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid, Jesus says. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell. Paul. 2 Corinthians, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates us. Perfect holiness comes from the fear of God. Peter, 1 Peter 1 17, 2 17, show proper respect for everyone. Fear God. The angels of heaven, for God's sake. Revelations 14, they said in a loud voice, Fear God. And give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. <laughs> Are we getting it? The priority of the fear of the Lord as a prerequisite to wisdom even? Deuteronomy says it this way, "Oh, now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Now, what's so strange about this is notice how often this portion is forgotten. It is one of the most quoted passages in the, in, in, in gospel centered Christianity that we're to love the Lord our heart with our mind soul strength and love our neighbors ourselves. And it's all quoted here, and even Jesus quotes it that way. But we don't quote Jesus on fearing God. Why? Why do we have this aversion? Why are we uncomfortable with this? There's such great value in the fear of God. Proverbs 15, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth and turmoil. Really? God? Really? I mean, all the things that we fear, are they not related to the fear of losing something that we find valuable? That's what fear is. It's the fear of losing something. And whatever is an idol, we so fear it and its power that we're afraid of losing it, the idol's blessing. Remember where this context came from. We live in history and arguably the safest time ever for humanity. We live in a time when we live longer, live with wealthy access. These are generalizations. I know there's some real problems in here. I won't get into that. And yet we're those fearful people in the world. Why? I mean, I just thought of a, a reason. Jesus kind of said what we've already said when he said, watch your heart for your treasure. Is where your heart is. Where is our treasure? Really? What is it we fear? That's our treasure. It's what we treasure most. And it, whatever that is, will result in a correlation of, or a reciprocal of all these a domino effects of planning, of work, of study, of research under that treasure. Will be assumptions about your life that without this it could never be good kind of assumptions? Oh, I've got to get my kid in a name brand college and if I don't, all hell will break loose in the world. Fear. Or I have to have this certain lifestyle. I hear hear me say it all the time. I hear it in so many ways in us. What we fear. And when you listen to it, it's like, why are we working so hard? Why, why don't we have that much time? What, what is it? What's going on here? It's not the fear of God. I'm sorry. It's not the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. You hear the virtue of this Fear. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord? A little? Less time, you mean, Lord? I'd live less time in this world? Yeah, that's what Jesus said. You mean, if the fear of the Lord even will result in taking 20 years off my life, you really mean that means that, that it's greater and I'll have more blessing to, in the fear of the Lord than the fear of losing my life? Because, you know, that's, that's the ultimate. Like I said, now everything else just kind of goes under it. And I know that's not what's our driving fear in many cases. Life. It's something much more base. The fear of the Lord. Do we believe this? Is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. Therefore, Scripture presents the reality that true wisdom, the wisdom that leads to an abundant life, it always begins with fear. Proverbs 15, 33, The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. Job 28, and he said to mankind, truly, the fear of the Lord, that is real wisdom, in quotes. Can there be any doubt that the fear of the Lord is a consistent and major theme throughout Scripture, Christian? As even as essential virtue into salvation as there could be? Psalms 119 is an amazing psalm. On the surface... You think that it's all about the word. It's the very longest psalm and every single stanza without exception speaks directly to the word, the issue of the word of God. It's all said in different ways and different manners, precepts, you know, promises, covenants, all this stuff. So at first glance, you'd think, well, Psalms 119 is about the Word of God. And I always, even in my, you know, sometimes you've got to listen to your intuitions. For all of my Christian life, I've thought, I'm obviously missing something, because I don't get why the longest, most serious prayer in all the Bible is just one long prayer about the Word of God. I mean, I know the word's important, God, come on, I mean, you know, but it just didn't make sense. That's what drove me this week in my study. You know, it's interesting when Spurgeon soon realized, as with all who study Psalms 119 in any depth, that to make Psalms 119 all about the word of God is to severely miss the ultimate point of the psalm. Even then to discover that the ultimate point is so deep and so multitudinous that that it is nowhere named. Now, this is a real common thing for the scripture. When when something is so big and so important, that instead of naming it, you just do it in the way you tell your narrative. You just say it in the way that you describe life. I think of the Song of Solomon that way. I think of Esther the book of Esther that way, where God is not even named once, and yet the whole book is about the sovereign presence of God. This is like that. And the word is wisdom. This is a psalm, and it's a a petitionary psalm, begging God in this multitudinous way for wisdom. And at the core of that prayer is the fear of God. I mean, we just went through layer after layer. We went from from the worthless things that that we fear to the Word of God which directs us to God, which directs us to wisdom, which directs us to the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Teach me. Notice what he's saying here. It's not about the word. It's about what he wants from the word. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Give me understanding. Lead me in the path. Incline my heart. These, this is what he's praying for. Because Why? Because he fears the Lord, and he wants to know Him. He knows that to be on his right side, whether we can make the dots, connections, or not, not, it's really flourishing. Everything, happiness, everything, relationships, everything. It comes down to your relationship to the one who holds the power of your life in their hands. And he knows that in this psalm. So he has a hunger unquenchable. He is Preston Graham at three in the morning, the day that his worst fear were in his eyes. What you could add in your life that day. And I was in a idolatrous frenzy. What I really needed was to reconcile life without my eyes as better than life without God. took months. This is where the psalmist is. Do you fear God? Could you and I make this our prayer, our constant prayer? I am convicted that I don't. And I'm sorry I'm convicted that we don't. We come to a table. I know you've heard it perhaps before, but often we hear only the end. This language of Lucy who encounters Oslin, the metaphor, of course, of Christ. Here's how this all goes. I love how it ends, and I ended it there for you in the meditation because I didn't want to get you to the quote that you probably already know, for emphasis sake. Lucy has just encountered Oslin and she goes to the beaver and she says, Is, 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 is he a man? Oslin, a man? Mr. Beaver stir, said sternly, Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Who is the sovereign? Who is the all powerful one? Who is the all present one? It's Oslin, Oslin the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I mean, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting him, a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mister Beaver, Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Azam without their knees knocking, they're either braver than anybody or just silly. Now, what does he mean by silly? You know what he means. One of the most consistent contrasts to the fear of the Lord as the wisdom of God is a fool. That's where we have, of course, that famous explanation by Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, we come to a table, and while I'm exhorting you, the Lord is exhorting He's reasoning with you. He's, in sacred record, begging you. Fear the Lord. Don't be afraid of fearing the Lord. Fear Him. But this table sums up all of history as to why our prayer in Psalm 119 this year can conclude upon the steadfast love of the Lord. For here we find a God, the God, His only Son, Jesus Christ, in our midst, powerful over death Himself, Fear Him. And as you fear Him, perfect love will cast away all fear. Come to the table, all who want to be banished of fear. Amen.